This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. Welcome back to 50 Feminist States, this road-tripping, storytelling podcast that used to travel all over the U.S. to interview feminist activists and artists, and now, during the time of COVID, is recorded remotely. I'm Amelia Fruby, the host and producer of this podcast, and I'm bringing you more episodes of season six, which is becoming this really beautiful collection of conversations from all over the United States with activists and artists who are finding their way through this pandemic and not letting it pause or lessen their work for gender justice and liberation for all. In today's episode, I talked to Latricia Adams, who is a co-founder of Black Millennials for Flint, an organization that is working toward a lead-free USA. And they do work all over the country to raise awareness about lead poisoning in water, in buildings, in all sorts of ways that it seeps into our environments, as well as to help people advocate for themselves in all areas of their lives that might be impacted by lead. So we have a really beautiful conversation about what it means to take a intersectional approach to environmental justice. We talk about intersectional environmentalism, which is a term coined by Leah Thomas, who comes up in this episode. And overall, it just reminded me how much work is still being done in Flint, how much work is still being done around the country, and the fact that we have so much work left to do. But that doesn't have to fill us with dread or negative emotions. Instead, it can inspire us to work together to take on more and to see the way that different threads weave into and out of our lives and our desires to change them. Before we dive right into the episode, I want to share an update about something that's happening behind the scenes at 50 Feminist States right now. I announced a few weeks ago that I'm hosting the very first 50 Feminist States podcast fellowship. This is an opportunity for folks from underrepresented backgrounds in podcasting and feminism to learn how to podcast with me, Amelia, and to produce an episode of 50 Feminist States. It's a paid opportunity. I'll be providing stipends of at least $300 for two to three fellows to work with me this spring to learn how to podcast. I'll be doing training on recording and producing, and then each fellow will get to practice, get feedback from me, and propose an episode of 50 Feminist States talking to feminist activists in their area or another part of the country, potentially if they're an organizer themselves to feature their organization or their own work. I think there are so many things that 50 Feminist States could be. I'm really excited to invite podcast fellows to reimagine this podcast in their own voice. 
And part of my goal is to decenter my own voice. And as a result, hopefully to decenter whiteness in 50 feminist states and to provide tools and a paid opportunity to learn those tools to, I've seen the application so far, some really bad ass feminists out there. So if you'd like the opportunity to be among them, you can head to 50feministstates.com slash fellowship. You can learn more about the fellowship and apply there. Applications close a week from today. If you're listening live, that's going to be February 25th. The fellowship begins in early March. So if you're listening in, now is the time to head to 50feministstates.com slash fellowship and learn more and submit an application. If you're wondering why you're just hearing about this, then I'd like to invite you to get on our newsletter list and our Instagram, which is where I do share the most up-to-date information about what's happening at 50 Feminist States. So you can find us at 50 Feminist States on Instagram. That's F-I-F-T-Y Feminist States. And at 50feministstates.com, you can sign up for that newsletter at 50feministstates.com slash newsletter. In this episode, you're going to hear my conversation with Latricia Adams, who is a former educator, a current educational leader, and the co-founder of Black Millennials for Flint. Black Millennials for Flint is a grassroots environmental justice and civil rights organization that aims to bring together like-minded people and organizations to collectively take action and advocate against the crisis of lead exposure in African-American and Latino communities throughout the nation. As Latricia says in the episode, they are the first organization led by Black and Brown activists to focus on lead exposure in the United States. They have a really powerful action plan that she talks about for how they address lead exposure and healing bodies and communities from long-term exposure to lead. And I really love the way their vision brings together public health, reproductive justice, and environmental justice. It's all there. I really want you to hear from Latricia herself around what led her to start this organization, how she's brought so many people together around something that too many of us think is a part of the past, as well as how Black Millennials for Flint, while being about Flint and helping the people who are advocating for clean water there is such an important part of the org, they're also taking this far beyond Flint and into other corners of the United States where lead exposure is a threat specifically to black and brown communities and often to all of us. So let's go ahead and dive into the episode. She'll introduce herself and tell the story of black millennials for Flint. Now. My name is Latricia Adams and I have such a festive background about who I am and and where I am. Um, So I am originally from Memphis, Tennessee. I'm an educator by trade. So I actually, at one point in my life, I taught middle school and high school Spanish. And while I was in the the K through 12 sector, just felt like this is really great work, but felt like I could do a lot more in a different capacity to reach more people. So I taught in Nashville, actually, was there for five years and then moved to D.C., In D.C., my my life completely changed. While in D.C., the Flint water crisis occurred. 
And while there are, I mean, a, a litany of, of, of social justice issues, environmental justice issues, human rights issues, issues like galore, right? Yeah. Something just felt different about what was going on in Flint. The fact that we, you know, as a, a country consider ourselves, even though I don't like this lingo, but consider ourselves to be a first world uh, mm-hmm. uh, country still experiencing issues where people literally can't drink water out of the tap, you know, it's not safe to even bathe in it. So keeping in mind that, you know, I'm an educator by trade, definitely had and still have um, a very vast background in community organizing. At that time, and this is around November of 2015, is around when the country started to learn more about the crisis, even though the switch to the Flint River had actually occurred in 2014. And so I was really disappointed at that time with some of our legacy civil rights organizations, which unfortunately, with the exception of the NAACP, they don't really have an environmental justice focus or platform, which is unnerving to say the, the least, because Black brown folks are the most disproportionately impacted. And so um, in millennial fashion, even though I'm a seasoned millennial, as I like to call myself, (laughs) I initially organized a water donation drive, which is how many people were responding at that time and realized very quickly that that was an expensive feat. Mm. Um, So I partnered with another organization in Buffalo, New York, called the Buffalo Young Professionals, which is an affiliate chapter of the National Urban League Young Professionals. And so we partnered with them. Um, and also with Target, we were able to get some water sent over to Flint. So full transparency, I was like, you know, I, I did something. It, it's not, you know, like groundbreaking or anything, but I'm like, at, at least I did something, right? Mm-hmm. So fast forward to 2016, I actually was at a new member orientation for an organization in based in D.C. called Thursday Network with the Greater Washington Urban League. And so at this new member orientation, I met a young lady. Um, her name is Michelle Mapson, who is phenomenal. She's very important to the story and had never met this girl before in my life. Drop dead gorgeous girl, too. So I'm like, who is this beautiful girl? And she said, I like, you know, that you did this project in Flint. But you know that like, you know, there's not just lead issues in Flint or just in water. And so, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, yeah, you know, like lead paint chips. I know a little bit about that, but it seemed like kind of a dated issue. Mm -hmm. Little did I know. And so what really resonated with me is what she said next um, was, did you know that Freddie Gray experienced childhood lead poisoning? So if you think about that timeline, that hit me in the gut Mm -hmm. where it was almost like surreal. Like, are you serious? So one, you know, going to school and feeling, you know, fairly like educated (laughs) and completely being oblivious to how pervasive issues are surrounding not just lead exposure, but just environmental justice issues Mm -hmm. altogether. And so I was already mad the first go around, like, man, there needs to be some more action. And so at that point, I convened a group of young people, older people, where I just was like, hey, 
what are we going to do about this? Like, this is, this is out of control. Like, what can we do? And so on February the 10th, which is coming up soon, um, February the 10th is we came up with the name Black Millennials for Flint. And the, the reason for that name is because Flint rocked the world as it relates to the impact of environmental justice issues and the lack of accountability for uh, local, state, and federal government. We also came up with our four action plan. It was it was a hell of a call. <laughs> I'll just say that. Yeah. And so what we learned very early is that we are so unique. So we literally are the first black and brown led EJ org that focuses solely on lead. Mm -hmm. Now we serve as advocates um, for other issues surrounding environmental justice. So climate also like PFAs and other things that are pretty devastating from an environmental perspective, Mm -hmm. but the sole focus is on lead and how it shows up in various ways. Mm -hmm. And so in 2016, we organized a a trip to Flint, a service trip to Flint, got some partners from the D.C. area, from Philadelphia, and we made a a long trip to Flint um, and we did two things. So we partnered with the Boys and Girls Club in Genesee County which, you know, where Flint um, is located. Mm -hmm. And that was really cool because we brought youth with us from D.C. And D.C. has its own issues with water quality and just environmental justice issues. We also did door-to-door water distribution and canvassing. And so with the canvassing effort at that particular point in time, Flint residents were trying to advocate to not pay their water bills, which was astronomically high, And why would you be paying for poison water? Yeah. And, you know, trip was amazing. Very heart wrenching, though, at the same time, maybe like a week after we got back in D.C., the very children that were with us, we had middle school kids and high school kids receive letters at their schools stating that there was lead in the water in their schools, Mm -hmm. literally within like a week's time. I was already mad. Yeah. (laughs) So now I'm like pissed beyond belief like are you serious yeah and so I was like okay this is the final straw like I can't take this anymore now what makes this really even more complex is at that time I used to work for DC public schools in their district office and interestingly enough I worked in a chief operating office which would be the office that would be responsible for the maintenance and upkeep of our schools so I Still didn't care. Had already like talked to my parents, like, it's a possibility I could get fired. Not sure yet. Yeah. Um, and um, essentially, I had to testify for my boss, you know, saying these are the things that we need to focus on. Like, this is unacceptable, but not just putting onus like on the school district, but also like all the government agencies that were involved that had not provided accurate oversight and upkeep of our buildings with our most precious little people. And so that was a very interesting start to an organization. I had no types of desires like or goals to start a nonprofit at all, but it it kind of was just being obedient. Like I, I had to do it because it was really absent and really absent of women and specifically black and brown women 
um, in our current space with environmental organizations um, or the big greens being majority white and not being able to carry the narrative of, yes, we care about the environment itself, but we also have to care about the people that live in the environment. Yeah. So that uh, maybe not as much about me <laughs> per se, but <laughs> just a long winded way to describe like the journey to how we got here. And it, I mean, yeah. has been a wonderful journey. We learn more and more each day and just the, the story and our narrative um, just speaks to, you know, like the Margaret Mead quote, like a small group of people can really change the world. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's how we, that's how we all got started. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for telling that story and sharing it with me. I find that talking to grassroots activists, it's rare that any of them were like, I'm going to be an activist when I grow up. It's like they were all doing something and then either like experienced an injustice or realized what was happening and felt called like they had to do this. And in some instances, especially I think in environmental justice, what people don't realize is that it's life and death for so many people. Mm -hmm. And so often people who begin grassroots environmental work is because people around them are dying because of the environmental issues that are going on. I'm wondering maybe if we can even take a a step back because I know a lot of the work that Black Millennials for Flint does is just getting people to recognize that lead is still around us. I know so many people think of lead poisoning as something that's like in the past. Mm -hmm. And then maybe with Flint, they realized, oh, it's not just in the past, but they might think it's just in Flint. And as someone who lived in Chicago for almost a decade, I'm very aware that lead poisoning is not in the past. yeah. (laughs) <laughs> um, especially in that city too. So could you share like, what do you wish more people knew about lead and what kind of awareness is your organization trying to build around it? One of the things that is really compelling about this work, and I want to give a, a shout out to a young lady. Oh, this young lady is so dope. Um, her name is Leah Thomas. She coined the the concept, the phrase of intersectional environmentalism. And I think one of the things that we have been successful with is being able to connect the dots. Even like my initial knowledge of like lead poisoning, I immediately went to lead um, lead paint chips, right? But part of like our platform, even prior pre-COVID, we um, were really savvy like with social media and really trying to create content that would be engaging. Environmental justice is not a sexy topic. Um, When you look at like the the list of all of the social ills that we experience. And I don't want to say that it's a competition because it's not like the oppression Olympics, but, you know, you have like police brutality, you know, um, the need for criminal justice reform, like education reform. There's all these like competing priorities. Um, So that's something that we recognize. And so we take the aspects of like the culture of young people, like things that they're interested in, even the language accessibility component we take into consideration. Uh, with being able to amplify the issue. Um, Another thing that um, we've really been focusing on uh, from an intersectional perspective is maternal health. That has really been um, so eye-opening for people. And so, you know, Flint is like the poster child 
for how like an, an environmental crisis, literally, like you mentioned, is like life or death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we um, have been able to expand like our um, coalition, if you will, mm-hmm. um, where it crosses over into other platforms. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we now have such a, a robust alliance with black and brown doulas and birth workers to talk about, you know, the importance of with diet, for example, you know, making sure that um, women who are are pregnant or wishing to conceive, um, making sure that they have access to healthy housing, access to, to clean water, even like from the the dishes and plates and what what not that you use, making sure that they are lead free and really talking about how if you are exposed to lead, you know, with this one example, if you are pregnant, like we're talking about lead exposure, not just happening with you, but to, you know, to the fetus, mm-hmm. the unborn child. Yeah. And that definitely has been powerful for people to see. Another thing that has really been a cool phenomenon is we bring in dads. Mm -hmm. So bringing in men. So from that perspective, one, like talking about uh, specifically with Black women, the intersection of like equity with healthcare and how um, Black women, especially and Latina women, um, experience so many issues as far as racial discrimination um, and hospitals, you know, Mm -hmm. not even just just to give birth, but just in general, from a reproductive health perspective and being able to fuse that with like lead also. So that has really been cool to diversify who the audience is. Mm -hmm. Talk about that a lot where in the environmental justice space, and I'm I'm not, I'm going to remove justice in the environment space. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes folks are very technical Um, So you have like scientists or uh, folks that may only have a like public health background, but from a a research perspective, not the organizer perspective, not the like community advocate perspective. And so we've also been really successful with bringing your community leaders into this work also and making people feel comfortable Mm -hmm. because again, like, I can use myself as an example. So my founder, Michelle, she's also a a co-founder. She's an environmental scientist. I am not. But it's really important to have, like, I'm an educator or community organizer. I see things a lot differently, which, you know, works very well adjacent to um, someone that does have that technical background. Other aspects that we use with amplification, um, we go to the people. So we go, of course, like COVID-19 is just a nightmare. I don't want to spend much time on that. But we, you know, are in a community, we typically do a lot of canvassing. So literally like direct engagement with folks. Mm -hmm. Um, So for example, in Baltimore, some of our work was featured in a documentary Mm -hmm. where essentially we just educated the community about their rights, their tenants' rights with lead-based paint violations. And many of the people that we met were like, what, really? That's what's going on, you know? Mm -hmm. And then in addition to that, we are small and mighty 
um, organization, but we also partner with big names. So we have worked tremendously with like an urban league with trying to provide like advising around how they can capture more environmental justice focused work within their respective platform. We've worked with the NAACP, which that same frustration that I had it has been, you know, refreshing to see everything kind of come full circle. I hope that answers yeah. your question. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> thank you. That was such a powerful way to speak to how environmental justice and social justice causes of all kinds are intertwined. And I also really enjoy Leah Thomas's work and intersectional environmentalism is so important to talk about. And it's great to talk to like an organization who is also doing that work in real real time in the world with the different communities, <laughs> I guess I should say. So as we wrap up, how can people who want to join in your mission for a Lead Free USA join the fight or either get involved with or support Black Millennials for Flint? Yeah, so we do, uh, from a national perspective, we do a lot of political advocacy. So pushes for um, legislation from a national scope, from a federal perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so we, you know, invite folks to please sign up for our listserv because we have lots of opportunities that we talk about a lot. Um, to gain support there. Um, also, social media is a powerful tool. And I think at first people used to sleep on social media and say young people are always fiddling with their phones. But now in COVID, we realize how important it is. Mm -hmm. um, so following us on all of our social media outlets, reposting is powerful. It seems simple. It's not. It's a powerful tool. It helps us to amplify a messaging um, so we're on Twitter at BM4, and that's the number four, Flint. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Black Millennials for Flint with the number four. We also have a YouTube channel, uh, which is gaining some traction because we have these recordings now and are actually reaching a lot more people um, since we're more in a virtual space. And then the last thing, this is more specific to um, our local work. So we have something that's called the Lead Prevention Ambassador Program. It is great. Um, and so because we're a small organization, we work with leaders, um, black and brown leaders in the community to build their capacity around environmental justice. So it could be like teachers, attorneys, public health people, government folks that all, you know, use their respective platform to amplify things around lead prevention. Mm -hmm. So we currently recruit from Flint, Michigan, Memphis, Tennessee, Baltimore, Maryland, and DC. We are looking to expand um, as we build more capacity. But if you check our website out, there's more information about that program. We're in our current cohort, but applications for the 2021, such a mouthful, 2021, 2022 uh, cohort or program year will go out in the late summer. So probably around July. Awesome. Well, I think that was kind of my list of questions. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about today or that you'd like to, to mention? Yeah, I also like to say if, you know, uh, anyone that is listening that is a part of an organization that wants to partner, if you learn more about our ambassador program, 
and are looking to have us to maybe do a pilot, even if you have youth that you work with, because we've also piloted a leadership program with youth as well, which is really awesome. Man, Gen Z is the truth. I have hope for the future. Those are also opportunities that can be explored as well. We are very innovative and progressive, so you, you won't get a no from us. This is like, Hmm, how can we make this work? That's so exciting. Thank you so much for your time. I'm really grateful. And I hope you have a good rest of your day and your week. Thank you, you too. Thanks so much to Latricia for being on 50 Feminist States and to you for listening to this episode. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast or linked in any listening platform where you might be tuned in today. I also want to remind you that applications for the 50 Feminist States podcast fellowship are open for one more week after the original air date of this episode. If you'd like to learn how to podcast with me, Amelia Ruby host and founder of 50 Feminist States. You can apply at 50feministstates.com slash fellowship. That's 50feministstates.com slash fellowship. Hoping to be back soon with another very special episode to add to season six. More on that in the near future. Bye friends. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministstates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.